Hello, I'm Alex Crow. And I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Talk of the Times. This week we learnt that at the very top of business, women remain vastly underrepresented. There's been hardly any movement in the number of female chief executives in major Australian companies over the past four years. It may even be going backwards. In 2018, there were 14 women at the top, and in 2020, the latest figures available, the number had dropped to 10. And it's not just boardrooms where women are scarce. I was at the Australian War Memorial this week where there are currently no female statues. So lots to discuss. We're joined by two of our star writers, columnist Jenna Price and political correspondent Sally White. First of all, Jenna, how do we explain the underrepresentation of women in boardrooms? Look, it's really interesting. First of all, when you are looking at who you might like to be on your board, and if you're a man or if you are casting around and the men are in charge of casting around, there's an idea that people should be like you. And that's not just about what school you went to or what university and degree you went to. It's also about your gender, your identity, your kind of networks. I'm really interested in this research from the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology, which was just released this week. And basically it says that for all categories of CVs being evaluated, and this was for, I think, a PhD program, CVs from men received higher scores compared to CVs from women. And it was really interesting to discover that even when they, when they de-gendered them, when they took out the names, they were ranked according to actual merit. So I'm just thinking that we should possibly go for a thing now where people have to apply for these kinds of positions, apply for a board, and then you take out every bit of indication of gender where possible. One of the things that really got to me about this research was that when they were analysing the CVs, uh, this you know group that were looking at the CVs, three quarters of the men were more likely to be seen as having leadership potential compared to women. So you can see there that gender bias is powerfully prevalent because if you're looking at CVs with identical kinds of achievements, the thing that makes the difference is whether you can tell whether the, the applicant is a woman. What's fascinating in, in that research and, and some of the words you use there, Jenna, is around men being judged on their leadership potential. And in in some areas, what we find is that women aren't given the same sort of license to say we see potential in this person. Instead, they're judged on their achievements and then given extra hurdles to get over that men aren't given. Um, So some different research that I reported on this week is in the political sphere, not in the business sphere. And it's talking about merit in getting to the cabinet table. And, And we constantly hear from political leaders that it's all about merit. And if that was the case, it would seem that merit... Uh, is a hundred like much more in the male sphere than in the female sphere. But what this researcher did through interviewing people that had been at the cabinet table across both sides of politics, women and men, and at state and federal level, is that in that sense, merit is definitely seen as more of a political thing than a work thing, like an actual like experience thing. Let's say we've got a new government come to power or we're about or an existing government is about to have a, a reshuffle of their cabinet positions, their most senior ministerial positions. The Prime Minister of the day is looking around at 
let's say, his colleagues, because I think the 99% of the time in Australia, it's been a, it's been a him. Uh, he's looking around at these people and thinking, okay, who do I want around the cabinet table with me? Who are going to be my 19 most trusted advisors as ministers? When they look at those people, they look at them on merit, supposedly, but merit isn't just seen as, oh, Mr. So-and-so has policy experience in the area that I'd like to make him minister or Ms. So-and-so has policy experience in the area that I'd like her to be minister. It is, okay, Mr. So-and-so is more politically allied to me and I know I'm always going to get a voice backing me up at the table if they're there. And there might be another person, a woman who might have policy expertise, might have been a CEO, has a lot of experience, is really showing that they've got the potential for leadership there. But perhaps that person hasn't been seen as a team pl- a team player they've been willing to speak out against the party line when they th- when they disagree and that is going to actually be more of a penalty on women than it is on men does this merit finding sort of discredit the idea that the best person is getting the job this research does discredit that idea that everyone who is there is the best person for the job and that's part of the reason why there's so much resistance in this way because people who are in these jobs don't want to believe that they're not the best person for the job we rely a lot on the input of human resources departments and human resources departments i'm just going to wildly generalize here see women as a problem they're the ones that have to take parental leave they're the ones that If there's a sexual harassment problem, they're the ones that are going to be coming to HR. I think HR doesn't do the best job in thinking about diversity and inclusion. I think they're there to protect the company and their way of protecting the company is to ensure that it's the old way. It's the old way where it's mostly men, there's going to be no boat rockers. I don't agree with you there about HR departments. I mean, obviously, they're all different. But there are HR departments where I know people inside them and they are right at the forefront of appointing women and non-white people because uh, they fear the social media opprobrium. And in one HR department, I know, they're worried about men bringing discrimination cases because every job that comes up, they think, well, you know, they're going to appoint women here. I think that's interesting that they fear social media opprobrium. What about HR doing the right thing because it's actually the right thing? The giant sooks, they are giant sooks if they fear social media opprobrium. I was going to say as well, one thing that that shows is that HR departments or or really anyone in an organisation can only be agents of change when they are empowered to do so by their leaders. So if you have a company whose leaders are like, we don't want the boat rocked, we want everything to be easy, we don't want to be agents of change and we don't want agents of change within our organisation, parts of the organisation are going to react to that, including HR. And if, on the other hand, you have a leadership of an organisation that says, we want change, we want more diversity, we want our culture to be changing, then they're going to get that at lower levels and and different departments. And that also shows up in the way that we often talk about, like, for example, um, at the very start, we talked about the number of women who were heads of these companies. One thing that is really important to know is that there are organisations out there that some of them are getting close to 50-50 or close to what they see as equality. 
their cultures aren't always changing because the people in those organizations aren't always feeling empowered to speak up and say, hey, actually the way that we do things is basically medieval. And so there's a difference between having numbers and having culture that actually allows for change. Because there has been a push to encourage men to take paternity leave, but it doesn't really seem to be happening, at least not very quickly. Is that your understanding, Sally? That's definitely where it comes down to cultural change. A couple of years ago, I interviewed a man who had taken parental leave to be the the main carer for his child for, for I think, nine months. And in his organisation, his bosses were saying to him, tell everyone you possibly can that you have taken parental leave and that this is something that we offer and encourage in our company. Whereas some people, some men don't want to take parental leave because they see that, that they feel like they're then going to be told you're not taking your career very seriously. Now we're getting to the nub of it, and that is men bearing the burden. Jenna, I want to put a point to you. If you have blind applications, so you can't tell the gender of the applicant, the sex of the applicant, as I choose to put it, then women will be at a disadvantage because women take time out. Women tend to take time out more to have babies and have to take time out to have babies when men can't. And so there will always be this disparity between the track record of women and men when it comes to the application. How do you get around that? I'm in my 60s and I would say that uh, my CV looks pretty much like my husband's CV. Like there's not many gaps. I took the same amount of parental leave that he took even though his was unpaid. Um, I mean, it's really interesting to me when Sally talks about businesses encouraging men to take parental leave. My um, my son-in-law and my daughter, they live with us. And when their first baby was coming along, I felt really anxious. I said, oh, how are you going to manage this? You know, and, and my son-in-law who works for NAB said, my manager told me to take parental leave. It's my right and I'll have fun and I'll um, have much more to do with my baby. And it's been absolutely glorious. And now they're having the second one and getting exactly the same encouragement. And I think, boy, how things have changed. Uh, whereas when we had ours, basically they said to my husband, your career's going to fall off the tracks if you do this. Or, look, let me give you a pay rise so that your wife never has to go back to work. So it's changed. I think our, uh, And I certainly think that young women now in their 20s, 30s and 40s are um, getting the kind of support from their partners Uh, when it comes to baby making that was not really truly accessible to women of my age. Steve, I want to broaden the discussion a little bit. Let's talk about Colonel Vivian Bullwinkle, a nurse veteran who served Australia during World War II. Vivian was among those forced to evacuate Singapore on a ship which was later bombed. She survived a subsequent massacre by playing dead when Japanese troops ordered those who'd washed ashore back into the ocean. And now... The Australian College of Nurses are fundraising to build a statue of Vivian at the Australian War Memorial, where currently there are no female statues. I asked Veterans Affairs Minister Darren Chester this week why the government wasn't fitting the full bill. And while he didn't rule it out, it certainly doesn't feel like the kind of campaign the College of Nurses should be waging in 2021. What's going on, though? I suggest to you, Alex, that there are no women there because it's the men who do the fighting, I'm afraid. Oh, please shoot me. Please shoot me. Sorry. If you... I mean, you know, we've only had women on the front line for a very short time. 
but women have been integral to getting those people on the ground. And if you don't think nurses and doctors are an important part of our um, defence efforts, I give up and Darren Chester needs to be put out to pasture somewhere. Sorry. Jenna, the stats are with me. I hate to, you know, colour this whole but thing our, with facts, our, but the VCs are won by the men. They you, are. If you go to the, if you go to the Australian War Memorial, it is. It doesn't say the Australian War Memorial isn't a war memorial to soldiers. It is a war memorial to Australians who have served in conflict overseas, of which Vivian Bullwinkle and many, many women were. They were they were still very much on the front line. If you look at Vivian Bullwinkle's story, it is inspiring and amazing. And it is an absolute blight on the war memorial who have been doing some work in making sure there's a little bit more diversity in the stories they tell. But... It's an absolute blight on the War Memorial that there isn't this statue there already. The War Memorial is raking it in, millions and squillions of dollars for a huge extension nobody wants, and they can't pay for Vivian Bullwinkle. I- I'm going I'm to stage a sit-in until they bloody do it. It's ridiculous. Jenna Price, Sally White, I stand corrected and chastened. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for listening. I'm Alex Crow. And I'm Steve Evans. Join us again.